Good morning, everyone. I think we'll get our panel going. Uh, this will go to 12.30, and we have a wonderful panel today that is going to cover a topic that I know is near and dear to every member of NAATP, and, uh, but it's complicated. It's a little complex, and it's, it's a combination of politics, legislation, and law in addition to human rights. So it's uh, something that is crucial and timely, especially now. So let me introduce myself. I'm Ed Deal. I'm a person in long-term recovery. Somebody say hi, for God's sake. You know, NCADD has tried to do that, you know, with the anonymous people. I should have just said I'm an alcoholic, and you all would have responded appropriately. But uh, uh, I, I'm fortunate enough to serve on the uh, NAATP Board of Directors, and that's a great honor. And I chair our Political Action Committee, which is an exciting role that I enjoy very much, uh, working with uh, Mr. Mark Dunn, our Washington representative, and our board and our government affairs committee. And NAATP, the National Association of Addiction Treatment Providers, is the leading organization, in my humble opinion, that has done more to advance the cause of families we serve in recent years collectively with our coalition partners than we have seen in a long, long time. I go back a long, long way, and I remember when the Hughes Act was, uh, um, well, I knew about the Hughes Act. I wasn't quite sober yet, but back in 1977, when that great bit of legislation um, led and authored by Senator Harold Hughes of Iowa, uh, along with uh, another recovered alcoholic U.S. Senator, Senator Harrison A. Williams, my senator from New Jersey, uh, got together and said we need to do so much more to, to make alcoholism and drug addiction more an acceptable part of the mainstream of health care. And that law passed in 1970, took a long, long time to get to where it got, creating NIAAA and NIDA, among other things. And I don't think many of us can point to a great many additional vital pieces of legislation that moved our field forward between 1970 and when President George W. Bush agreed to sign the Mental Health um, Parity and Addiction Equity Act um, in 2008. And now here we are, it's 2016. And it's today's topic because politics is slow, government is slow, but what I'm a, a, a voice always loud and in favor of is that advocacy is crucial and it must be dealt with with persistence. And it's because so many of our pioneering mentors uh, believed in our cause and stayed with it and continue to hammer away at what was right. Uh, we have such great movement today in our field. So even as we speak right now, you know, the, the, the CARA legislation that has moved forward and then Congress has 
uh, is piling on with 18 additional bills somewhat related to the content of CARA and it's all to be worked out and uh, we're at an exciting time and uh, I know that Mark Dunn is going to speak a, a bit about that in his remarks and, and I want to just do a shout out for tomorrow there are additional, there is a round table chaired by Mr. Paul Hackman of Pavilion um, on uh, related topics to what we're covering today together with another panel specific to insurance that I believe uh, Mr. Heller is participating in and others as well. So let me begin. Thank you all for being here. What we're going to do is I will introduce our panel. They will take about five minutes apiece and, and, and cover their topic area that was agreed to and then we'll um, have some questions and further discussion and if we're successful today you'll leave here knowing more than you came in with. Uh, I already have. So here we go. Let me introduce to my immediate right, your left, um, Mr. Mark Dunn, who is our Washington representative. Mark is the president of Dunn & Associates, a Virginia and D.C.-based public affairs consulting firm. Uh, he has worked at both state and federal levels on behalf of various clients for the past 35 years. Uh, he is uh, our leadership organization's Washington representative and uh, we all members owe a great debt of gratitude for his, uh, his finesse, his networking, his Washington presence uh, because we have been as an association there at the fulcrum of what has been going on uh, with the Affordable Care Act and parity and all of the most recent developments. So uh, Mark is with us today. To his uh, right is Greg Heller. He's one of two lawyers on our panel today, in the interest of full disclosure. Uh, Greg Heller is a trial lawyer in Philadelphia. He sues people. And he does it really well, and you're going to hear about that. Uh, uh, NAATP has a collaborative uh, project that has been a couple of years old now with uh, the uh, drug and alcohol service providers of Pennsylvania, DASPOP, where uh, Greg has done so much uh, work. His work on addiction treatment policy has included work for the National Alliance for Model State Drug Laws, the Drug and Alcohol Service Providers of Pennsylvania, and NAATP. He has filed and won MAPIA lawsuits involving federal Blue Cross and commercial ERISA plans. So he's earned his seat because he's done the good work and we're very grateful that uh, he is with us today. Uh, next is uh, Lisa Landau, our second attorney on the panel. Uh, she is chief of uh, the Healthcare Bureau, a New York Attorney General's office. Uh, we invited Lisa to, to be on this panel today because of all of the 50 states. Uh, we're most uh, focused and have been most focused on the hard work and progress being made in New York State, so we're excited about that. We're very proud. Being from New Jersey, I wish the Garden State had has done one-tenth of what New York State has done thus far in order to advance uh, our folks' cause. Um, next beside Lisa is Sherry Layton. Uh, she is the Outpatient Services Administrator of uh, La Hacienda Treatment Center in Hunt, Texas. 
and I believe their post office address is number one in Hunt, Texas. It's really easy to find their treatment center. I have found it, and uh, it dominates Hunt, Texas. So we're, we're really uh, thrilled that Sherry is here, and Sherry has uh, some really interesting uh, experience and, and is anxious to share that today as to how, on behalf of this, uh, the work in the state of Texas, uh, they have made some pro progress. She coordinates La Hacienda's advocacy efforts and is co-chair of NADAC's Public Policy Committee and has served on the committee since 2008. Uh, Sherry was selected as the Senator Harold E. Hughes Advocate of the Year in 2014, so we're very pleased that she has joined us. So that is our panel, ladies and gentlemen, and I will begin uh, calling on our panelists to uh, present some information with Mr. Mark Dunn. Mark? Thank you. Is this on? All right. Thank you very much, Ed, for that very kind introduction. Um, I think I'm all set. We're in Florida. I have my Rubio water, so we're good to go. Um, as Ed said, uh, there's a lot of um, hard work that goes in uh, to politics behind the scenes. And as a result of that, there's a lot of stop and go. Um, as you uh, uh, probably know, um, many in this room were around and, and uh, uh, helped make it happen, but it took 15 years to get parity passed. And, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of people here spent a lot of time and effort to, to make that happen. What I want to do is just talk a little bit about an overview of where we are with parity these days. And then, because we have a lot of new people who are new to the field and new to uh, attend, attending this meeting, talk a little bit about the history of parity and, and how we got to where we are and why that's important to our, to our memberships. So as Ed mentioned, in 2008, uh, after 15 years, parity was passed, and it was kind of an amazing feat how that happened. It was a bipartisan bill, which didn't happen very often in those days and unfortunately still doesn't. Uh, another little tidbit that you might find interesting, um, it was the parity bill that Congress used to actually avoid uh, a government shutdown. So it was the, the budget agreement that was attached to parity that avoided uh, the government shutting down in, in 2008. So parity got passed and, and signed. Um, what happens after that is the agencies involved uh, involved in the in the law go through a process of rulemaking and uh, normally that takes a few years in this case it took five years which was way way too long um, a lot of us uh, um, talked about that a lot with the administration we did have an administration change of course but nevertheless five years was way way too long Shortly after, of course, President Obama was elected and uh, decided to make the Affordable Care Act his legacy uh, piece of legislation uh, in his presidency. So it was a major accomplishment to get parity included in the Affordable Care Act. And we were able to do that because it was a bipartisan bill when it was originally passed. So we had the rulemaking process for 
parity going on and at the same time we had the rulemaking process for the Affordable Care Act going on. So there were an awful lot of moving pieces with a lot of different federal agencies uh, going on. One of the things that happened uh, throughout this process that uh, this association played a major, major role in was during the discussion of what ought to be included in the 10 essential benefits. And uh, we learned that there was a big push because of cost concerns to leave residential care out of the 10 essential benefits. So maybe this is like a high, higher power thing or something, but uh, the association had developed a really good relationship with the co-chairs of the Addiction Treatment and Recovery Caucus in the U.S. Congress. Uh, they attended a reception uh, with our board of directors in Washington, D.C., and uh, we had supported them through our political action committee that, that Ed chairs. So we had a very frank discussion with those gentlemen, and they were totally on board. By the way, they were very good personal friends, which made this a whole lot easier. They got along well together. They understood addiction and supported recovery. Um, on behalf of the, I think it was close to 185 members of Congress, they ended up writing a letter to the administration saying, um, don't leave residential out. And uh, as a result of that uh, and some other things, um, obviously residential was included in the 10 essential benefits, which is huge for our field. Another little hiccup that happened uh, as the process went along was that they decided that parity enforcement was going to be delegated to the states. Now that made our job a whole lot more difficult because, you know, if, it, if we relied on the federal government, we could go one place and develop a, a, an enforcement mechanism at the federal level that would cover all 50. But suddenly we have 50 states to worry about. Uh, so our jobs got a whole lot more difficult, and uh, I'm so glad that you all are here because um, uh, there, there's a lot you can do moving forward to, to help us as, as we move forward uh, with enforcement. Another thing we heard from our friends at the federal agencies was that they weren't aware of any parity problems. Yeah, they actually told us that. So as a result of that, um, we went to our board of directors, and the board created a uh, process whereby members of the board could actually submit parity violations. Um, it was a very well done survey that was verifiable, and uh, not everyone participated, but uh, we did have a number of board members who did participate, and as a result, as you might guess, had hundreds of verifiable uh, violations of parity. So we took that information to our friends at the federal government, and that action alone really changed the nature of the discussion. They no longer said there were no violations. It then became um, a discussion about, okay, there are violations, how do we identify them, and how do we enforce the parity law? So that was a major thing that uh, this association did. We have been pushing for years 
um, trying to get a better uh, response on how to enforce parity. Um, it's, it's been way too slow. Um, so in the last year or so, this association, along with our, our other um, associations in the field, have made a concerted effort to remind the administration that you know they only had a year left. And if they really cared about uh, enforcement of parity and making uh, addiction treatment a part of the Affordable Care Act in a meaningful way, they had to get this figured out because they didn't have a lot of time left to do it. Well, they have suddenly went from first gear to overdrive. Uh, we learned in the last uh, month that they are creating a parity market conduct survey that's going to be used in five states originally, but will be used then around the country to see what's going on with parity. And uh, that will lead to uh, uh, some enforcement mechanisms that I think will be very meaningful for the field. They're also developing guidance to the states on how to enforce, which is something they had not done previously. So that's, that's a major uh, accomplishment. And they will also be publishing a, uh, an 800 number. So if you have a parity violation, you can dial a number and uh, uh, be instructed on how to report that, and uh, hopefully somebody will actually deal with it. That's the plan. Another major um, accomplishment has been the recent announcement of the White House Parity Task Force. So in a matter of a few years, we have gone from, we don't think there are any parity problems, to a White House Task Force to identify those problems and, and hopefully come up with some meaningful uh, recommendations on how to deal with it. Um, those recommendations will be due in October. Um, this association will be submitting comments uh, along with you know practically everyone in DC. One of the things we've learned with this administration is that it is good to have volume. So I would encourage all of you to go back to your facilities and consider Sending, uh, sending comments and recommendations. Um, use specific examples where you can, and once we have ours developed, we will share those with the membership, and uh, you're, you know, you'll be free to use that as a model on, on how to proceed. But we would really encourage you to do that. So that's kind of where we are. I think that uh, you know a lot's been accomplished in uh, uh, past five or six years, and uh, hopefully the reason that I do this is that, uh, uh, you know, it's going to benefit the people out there who are still suffering and need help, and I know that's why you are involved in this, and uh, as someone with uh, a long-term recovery myself, uh, I can tell you that's why I'm doing it, so thank you. Thank you, Mark. Um, I'm going to ask Lisa Landau to go next. I was Only a because bit. I think Greg Heller wanted to. So I'll, I'll <laughs> thank you, well, Lisa. I, I was just going to offer that it, 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 it's a good segue because of all the government action yeah. um, in Washington. It's so heartening to hear because um, at the New York State Attorney's, Attorney General's Office back in uh, 2012, uh, we uh, 
began to ponder our list of priorities and uh, I think with, a, with very much a public health perspective. So at the AG's office in New York State, it's Eric Schneiderman who had just been elected probably the year before, so started in 2011. Um, and we were just getting all of our bureaus sort of into gear. And uh, having the mantle of bureau chief in the healthcare bureau meant that I could develop the docket, uh, obviously, uh, you know, in, in discussions with others, including the attorney general, um, and really start moving forward. Uh, what was clear was that there, wa there were a couple of laws out there. We had a New York state law called Timothy's Law, which was our state parity law. And then we had uh, the federal law uh, in 2008, Timothy's Law was 2006. Uh, there was a, a, a growing addiction problem in New York state. Uh, I had just entered the AG's office from a stint at New York City's Department of Health and Mental Hygiene where Tom Frieden, now the CDC head, uh, was the commissioner and one of his top priorities was addiction and mental health um, along with a number of other uh, important endeavors. And so, you know, all of those things put together uh, plus uh, the AG's, Eric Schneiderman's uh, commitment to passing really the first prescription drug monitoring law called, in New York it's called iStop, uh, that had just uh, been successful in 2011, it just got passed. And here we were at the Healthcare Bureau, knowing all of this, knowing that this was a huge problem, we had uh, at our, at our uh, fingertips data from a complaint hotline. Uh, we have a helpline since 1999 probably, and it's a terrific source for not only individuals coming to our bureau to get individual assistance through these very, very seasoned uh, paralegals, uh, but also we can use the data from that complaint system to help determine what kinds of cases we're going to bring. And lo and behold, uh, there were over 200 uh, mental health parity-ish, um, you know, uh, complaints, so complaints from consumers um, about uh, being denied medically necessary care. Uh, a lot of those complaints were about residential treatment. I would compartmentalize between substance abuse and uh, eating disorders. And when we started to dig in a bit, we saw that there were, there were plans in New York State that blatantly carved out residential treatment for eating disorders, which we thought was a pretty big red flag for us. Um, and we saw, you know, boilerplate denials. The de denial letters that we started looking through, sifting through these complaints were really, um, you know, bereft of any information that would really help the consumer launch um, a meaningful appeal. Uh, so the handy tool that we have at the Attorney General's office, and I would argue probably um, is the handy tool of many government enforcement agencies, is subpoena power. So uh, on the basis of some illegalities, and we did a lot of research on, on the two laws, Timothy's law and the mental health parity law, uh, the federal law, saw that there was nil enforcement really, which for us lawyers who are feisty and want to do something new and creative, we thought, well, we've got these two laws, nobody's, nobody's really used them, uh, we have jurisdiction, we're going to move forward and issue subpoenas to uh, I think we started with three um, entities. And I, I would say the first foray we had, it was kind of a mini um, case that uh, 
it was Cigna and looking at the fact that they were not covering um, nutritional counseling. So they were covering it for eating disorders. So they were covering, covering nutritional counseling for, uh, for folks with chronic uh, you know, diabetes, but not for people with eating disorders. That was kind of like the very first settlement that we, we um, encountered and, and accomplished. Um, but then we, we dug into uh, some substantial plans in New York. MVP is one of them, Emblem Health, another uh, MVP Upstate, Emblem Downstate, and Value Options, um, which I know isn't most of you probably are familiar with now, Beacon Health, um, and really tried um, to, to see what was, what was going on. Uh, and, you know, what, what we saw most sort of dramatically uh, was that no one was really looking at parity at all. So if you're talking about the plans, um, either, you know, looking at their own, if they're, if they're not subcontracting out to a behavioral health company, uh, but are doing it in-house, or those like MVP and Emblem that were subcontracting it out, no one was measuring anything. So they were meeting out the benefit, the mental health benefit, they were doing their medical surgical benefits, but there was no even interest or inquiry or system to, to do any comparison. And we felt like, you know, if parity is to mean anything, you're going to be looking at what the benefit uh, comparisons are, you know, and you're going to be, you're going to try to measure uh, how you are uh, implementing the mental health benefit. And so that was the first uh, huge, I think, issue. And I think the plans were very um, taken aback to recognize that their own system or non-system was going to look pretty bad for them. Uh, so for the folks like Emblem and MVP who were actually subcontracting out, uh, you know, this was, uh, you know, this was pretty meaningful that they weren't watching their subcontractor. Um, Ultimately, we settled with, uh, let's see, uh, four major entities, so three plans and, um, and uh, Beacon Health. Um, you know, and, and the focus had really was what we saw from our subpoena documents, which were very high denial rates, which wouldn't surprise anyone here, I think, in the substance abuse area in particular. So. 50% of denial rates in rehab and residential, and um, and that's really compared to, to you know far less in in all other fields. Not only the medical surgical, of course, but um, other mental health um, arenas. So that was a big red flag. Uh, the boilerplate letters, of course, um, the high use of utilization reviews. So reviews are just a very high numbers percentage. Um, where we didn't see that on the medical surgical side. So we really forced the plans to start looking at this and, have, and give it to us to look at as well. And so um, that, that was kind of our, our, um, our foray into, into the area. And, uh, you know, it's always been, been um, I think, and I'm in, I'll be interested to hear others on this panel, my neighbor here, of course, to the left, but I think that government has a very uh, big advantage of going into sort of the heart and soul of the company's decision-making processes. Um, you are being one of, of course, the, the most, the biggest black box, I would say. Um, but to be able to go in and look at, you know, what is really going on 
both on the medical surgical side, which of course is the comparator, uh, and on, on the behavioral health side. Uh, ultimately, our, our resolutions, um, you know, forced the plans that weren't covering residential treatment to cover residential treatment. Um, UR reforms in included um, no fail first, which all the plans were, were doing. Um, uh, you know, much more detailed uh, letters, denial letters, criteria that was, was had to be in all of the letters so that people had the opportunity to, to really have a meaningful appeal. We had all of the plans, uh, you know, give opportunity to review medical necessity denial, again, with an independent review agency, so we did that. Um, that, uh, I think, gleaned about $1.6 million back to consumers, ultimately. We uh, imposed about $3 million worth of penalties to the plans themselves. Uh, we equalized co-pays. Uh, and we created something called a behavioral health advocate that was supposed to be helping consumers. So we've now been monitoring these cases for uh, two to three years, and we've seen denial rates decrease um, in some instances. Um, there's one plan we're fighting it out with, but um, it's just to say that it's even when you when you ha are a government entity, you've settled with your uh, health plans. There's still work to be done to oversee, you know, that they are complying. Um, so I, I will leave it at, at that. But I'm very encouraged that the feds are moving forward. We've we've now been getting calls um, from our sister agencies, uh, and and that's quite encouraging. I mean, we've tried our best to promote the fact that you know government agencies should be doing this. Um, we think that we've provided a lot of models to different entities, um, but the phones haven't been ringing off the hook, uh, though the feds have recently called us to, to talk a little bit about some of our strategies. So it's very heartening to hear that um, there's some, some things going on. Thank you, Lisa. <laughs> Greg Heller. Could you hand me the clicker, if you don't mind? Yes. So what do you do if you're a family that doesn't have the good fortune to live in New York? Um, you know, quantitative treatment limitations are limits on the number of days that they provide co-pays, that sort of thing. Reasonably, sort of a, I'll call it a solvable problem. Non-quantitative treatment limits, which are absolutely illegal under the Parity Act, if they are applied in a discriminatory fashion. Well, they're harder to measure, and you heard about that. Um, denial rates, that's one way to capture it, but unless you're the state, you're not going to have all that information. More fundamentally, how are you going to prove a relative standard? How high are the hurdles on behavioral health? How high are the hurdles on physical health if you only have, you know, one side of the scale? Well. It's a problem. Um, thankfully, and I'm just going to skip through that stuff. How do we know they can do it? Because they tell us they do it. Because Aetna's chief psychiatric officer is bragging about this comprehensive, you know, we did this great job and we are 100% compliant. Now, what do you do with that? Well, I want to take you to a patient named RS. Um, goes to a facility in Pennsylvania. And it's a story that we've all heard. 
Um, 23-year-old opiate addict, abusing Xanax and marijuana, chronic pain from sports injuries, history of a suicide attempt, an assessment instrument called the MMPI comes back not valid. He's got no sober peer supports at the family home, although he does have a mom who's in strong recovery. Thank you, Karen Foundation. Um, if this guy gets the right treatment, he's got a pretty good prognosis. He gets a few days of detox, 36 seconds of residential, then, you know, fine, you can get us a few more, and Aetna says you can go now. He's just finishing up the phenobarbital taper. He finally agreed to consult with a pain management doctor. It's well documented in the records, quote, there is a high likelihood of use without close monitoring and structural support, and, quote, there is no question he's going to use if discharged, close quote. We appeal it. We've got a denial. We have the lost packages, the secret criteria, this ridicula ridiculousness, the ridiculosity about you know the risk of relapse. They don't consider the recovery environment. We have this MD, not even licensed to practice in Pennsylvania, who makes a recommendation. And you'll hear a little bit about that later. Um, they're allowed to say no. They're not allowed to make recommendations. You got all the usual stuff. So what do we do? Well, we file. A, a federal lawsuit under a law called ERISA, which is sort of the Employee Retirement Income Security Act. It's the playing field on which benefit litigation claims are fought. And typically, you don't get anything in an ERISA case. There are literally hundreds and hundreds of cases involving all kinds of benefits stretching back decades in every federal court in the country saying all you get is what's called the administrative record. Now, remember I said a few minutes ago it's a relative standard. How are you supposed to pursue a parity case if you only have one side of the balance being, one side of the balance? So we argued about that in front of the judge a lot, and we briefed stuff, and we argued, and back and forth. Common sense prevailed, and the judge said, all right, Aetna, you have to let Mr. Heller see that and see exactly how you're measuring parity, et cetera, et cetera. And Aetna fainted. <laughs> they paid 150% of the value of the claim and a $25,000 attorney's fee, and we're, we're done with that one. That's one of the perils of bringing individual cases. You know, you get to that case, but when you get to that point, you get to that point. That basic framework applies and should apply to every single case anywhere in the country. That basic play of educating the court of explaining you've been provided this law and this claim, and we would like you to please allow us to prove what we've alleged, Aetna's going to face Aetna, United, all of them will have the same basic choice. They can either come clean about what they're doing, or they can pay your claim. Full stop. I don't care what the answer is. I suspect it's going to take a while to housebreak them. I'm not sure even Aetna understands the consequence of that. And I also want to make the point that there are perils there. You know, right now we're 1-0, but let's not screw it up. Um, the general employee benefits bar, you know, frankly, looked at me a little bit cross-eyed when I suggested we should be able to get discovery beyond the administrative record, that all these hundreds of cases didn't apply. I'm always a phone call away for whatever local person you have. Marvin always knows how to reach in touch with me. Ed, you know, send them to me. I'm happy to talk to them. But if I had to pick, you know, one win, 
that NATAP has frankly supported over the past year that's likely to make a difference, that would be absolutely the top of the list. Again, we're going to have to housebreak the carriers and let them know they've lost, but that's uh, consequential. Now, very quickly, I want to talk about Federal Blue Cross and OPM. Everybody woke up one morning and the residential benefit was out of the Federal Blue Cross plan. And I don't care what the regulations say, that was a violation of the terms of the law that have been the law in, the land, in this country since 2008, with maybe a slight hiccup along the way. In any event, and then you had the interim final rules, you had the final rules, doesn't matter. The law required that they be covered. And with some hiccups, a little slow getting going, um, but with the commitment of some treatment programs in Southeast, thank you, Rick Pine, um, we got the issue teed up in court, and the federal judge, we went to court and OPM said, well, we promised to comply with MAPIA, but that doesn't mean we have to comply with MAPIA. That's what they said. And Judge Davis said, no, nah, you know what, why don't you go ahead and run that through a MAPIA analysis? So it goes back to the Office of Personnel Management. <laughs> After a year and a half or two years, they come back and say, you know, no, nah, you know what, we've decided that parity does not require residential. And I have a very nice conversation with some very bright, well-intentioned, energetic lawyers for the local U.S. Attorney's Office, explaining to me why I'm full of hooey. And then a few weeks later, the residential benefit shows up back in the Federal Blue Cross benefit book for plan year 2016. So, I guess we were right. We get the benefit, and it's just the way it is. We all know it. You win, and then it's the next thing. And I don't know you know, who your local uh, outside contractor entity, and I'm going to skip through a bunch of stuff here for time reasons, but we, we have the benefit of Magellan in southeastern Pennsylvania. And the thing that I like about Magellan is there's not a lot of subtlety in what they do. <laughs> so, they, so they send the memo around to all the residential rehab say, um, all right, um, and I think I've gotten to the point where I can say all this stuff out loud without laughing. Um, if you're in rehab for an hour and you have not pre-certed it, and you're there for 30 days, and medical and Magellan's own person agrees those 30 days are medically necessary, you get zero dollars and zero cents. Because you have to go through this whole thing before you even walk through the door. Can you imagine that in human medicine? Can you imagine the, the, the outcry, the uproar, if the physical health system were told, oh, by the way, that cancer patient whose life you saved, um, you know, because they came in through your emergency room before they walked five times around the, you know, whole backwards, saying the magic words. All right. And this is, this is all in writing, by the way. This is why I love Magella. Um, you can't, by the way, you can't get pre-certed on weekends or after hours. So, you know, never, never get ready to go to treatment over the weekend. Um, you know. If we do say yes, it doesn't mean yes, because then there's a whole other level of review up with a plan. <laughs> you have to mail in the packages. You can't submit them electronically. And you have to include a copy of your accreditation certificate, which you know I'm sure we all have. Can you just imagine if that happens on the physical medicine side? Imagine the hospital the University of Pennsylvania sitting there saying, all right, you know, Greg needs whatever it is, you know, dialysis. Here's our copy saying that we're accredited. And these are in-network facilities, by the way, where presumably if they're doing their due diligence, they're accredited anyway. So, but what are we going to do about that, right? Um, it's hard to sue OPM 
it, and I'm not going to bore you with the details, it took us a while to figure it out to have the run straight at Federal Blue. Um, but we think we got another play ready for them involving something called the Uniform Declaratory Judgment Act. And I'd hope to be able to come by and say at this conference that we put that in suit. We haven't yet, but hopefully we're talking about weeks, not months, until we get that teed up. And that is simply asking uh, the court to declare that what they're doing is unlawful. Now, where we go with that, we can go to a lot of places. Maybe we know somebody in the New York AG's office. But rather than ask for the whole thing, but rather asking for a simple declaration, we think that that is another way at these kinds of you know, really systematic uh, abuses. It's not a short thing. It's a new play, just like the play that I mentioned in the RS case is a new play. Um, not to get too deep in the weeds, but one of the things that I did, because it's, it's a challenge, obviously. It's set up to make it hard to get to the heart of these things. Um, I have a friend who works at a, a very good firm in Philadelphia. They represented the NFL players in the concussion case. They're just absolute first-rate national litigate, national level litigators. And I educated my buddy about addiction, and we talked about it. And he, it's his play. I won't take full credit. David sent off, and he said, "Why don't you try this?" So you know, <laughs> they're going to see a play that doesn't come out of the standard employee benefits playbook that doesn't come out, frankly, of the standard attorney general's playbook, they're going to see a play that comes out of this totally different um, space. I think it's a winner. I think it's rock solid. Um, and, and, and stay posted for that. Um, UBH Optum, they're going to be the immediate um, object of our uh, attentions and affections. Um, and I, I'm glad I'm up here with someone from the New York AG's office. Because they're tracking denials, and I think what all of us see a lot of, and, and we can talk about it in a minute, should be seeing less of is these no-denial denials, where you call up and you get the denial, and all right, fine, we'll do peer-to-peer, -peer, and they give you one extra day or two extra days. No denial letter is ever generated. I'll bet you a dollar that when Ms. Landau goes to look at the file, that's not going to show up as a denial. It's certainly not going to show up as 27 units of service denied, the remaining 27 days of residential treatment, and we're going we're gonna to see where we get with that. Um, <laughs> United, they have enough information to deny care, but when you try to appeal, they say, oh, you can't pursue that appeal because the facility didn't send us the patient's entire chart. Well, in Pennsylvania, if, if the facility sends the patient's entire chart, the managed care company. They're out of business. Or at least they're the subject of licensure action and they just got a whole lot of explaining to do. So the notion that they have enough information to deny care but not enough information to approve care is interesting. Um, and we'll be, so there's some, there's some more sunshine on the way for that. <laughs> um, and, and I don't want to take too much more time. Can you, um, let me just very quickly. Um, Take another minute. Another minute. Um, a P applies to plan design. A whole lot of issues with state mandates in the health, in health insurance exchanges. In Pennsylvania and in many states, the uh, mandates come out of the group health insurance law, and you get these plans in many states. They're by definition the largest small group health plan. Sounds like a group health plan. Well, not everybody agrees with it. Some people do, but not everybody does. And in Pennsylvania, that's important because we have a law that, called Act 106 that says the clinician's determination controls, period, end of story. 
the 45 days of residential. Um, and I'm sure that there are a lot of other excellent state laws with these health exchange policies um, and their applicability will need to be established. NCOs have to tell the truth, the fair shake that we were just talking about. Um, you know, the main one, I think, is that last one. Um, my job is pretty easy when clinicians make clear clinical recommendations supported by some stuff. Um, if the clinicians if, 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 if the clinicians say, um, we'll take what we can get, or what do you recommend, or the telephone reviewer doesn't write down, we asked for 30 days and they gave us one, it just gets a lot, a lot harder. If a clinician writes, this patient, if you're in residential, and the clinician writes, this patient would not do well in outpatient, well, that's not as helpful as it could be. Because what about IOP? What about another one of these, you know, sort of intermediate levels of uh, levels of care? Network adequacy and narrow networks. Um, there's an accreditation game going on right now where they will take joint commission but not CARF, stuff like that. That's all a way of just, you know, having to pay for less care because there are less people out there to provide the care. Um, and, you know, we can never give up defending residential. Um, I, I don't know whether the IMD exclusion is part of the lives of many people in this room, but it's a Medicaid law. But as of a couple weeks ago, the federal government says, well, treatment setting is different from the treatment. Really? Um, so we're going to have to educate, you know, particularly with residential. That's, that's coming. Um, the big one, I'm not the guy to get on the soapbox, but, you know, if, if you go up to 100,000 feet, that's always the problem. We are just hardwired to look for a solution that solves all our problems with a pill. You know, let's empty out the rehabs and put everybody on this. I'm not saying it's not part of the solution, but it's not all of the solution. Um, I'm way over my minute, so I'm just going to leave it at that. You are over your minute. Thank you, Greg. Uh, Sherry Layton from La Hacienda. Well, I think that, um, you know, we're all kind of laughing and nodding, but the reality is is that we relate to all of these examples because we all experience these examples. And, and although we have this federal legislation that was passed in 2008 and, and there have been strides made, it still falls back to the state for enforcement of this federal legislation. And um, many, many states, in fact, uh, Patrick Kennedy did his kind of parody tour a couple of years ago, and one of the things that he came back with from that was, less than half the states are even paying attention to parity. And so as providers, our responsibility is to help them to pay attention, to help them understand that this really is part of what they're supposed to be doing at the state level. Um, we went in 2011 to have kind of our first meeting with the Texas Department of Insurance uh, in, and to talk about parity and to talk about the issues that we saw as, as providers and to also be able to look and to say, what um, what can they do to help us? What are they? Is this even on their radar? And they almost literally said, "Parity? What's parity?" You know. And this was three years after the law had passed. Um, now, you know, so we had this complete deer in the headlights look. And I, I do have to give them a little bit of grace because this was post the passage of the Affordable Care Act, and their heads were really spinning around that. Um, and in, 
you know, but the one thing that we did get from that meeting was they said, you know, we are responsible to approve every insurance policy that is sold in the state of Texas. And so they, you know, the, so the responsibility for parity in every one of those insurance policies falls back on them. And they told us that. I'm not sure they knew they told us that, but they said, you know, we are responsible for this. Um, well, in response to the Affordable Care Act, Texas chose to not expand Medicaid. They chose to not develop a state health insurance exchange. Uh, and then they joined with a lot of other states to sue the federal government to try to make, to try to show that the Affordable Care Act was unconstitutional. So their attention has been in that arena for a long time now, and parity has continued to basically stay off of their radar. One of the things that they did say in response to that was that they had no authority um, to enforce parity law uh, because it was federal legislation, and so at the state level they, they said, you know, we can't, we don't have the authority to enforce that. So they punted everything back for enforcement to the um, to health and human services, and that may or may not be a blessing to, because it's so difficult to file parity complaints with the Texas Department of Insurance. Um, so I'm not sure that that's necessarily working against us. What we have found out, and I think this is fairly um, across the country, is the enforcement is really convoluted for parity, and it really begins with. You know, depending on what type of policy has, that determines where you would go to file a complaint. And in most states, if you have an employer, um, an employer-based health insurance policy, you would file your complaint with your state insurance commissioner. Well, if you have an ERISA policy, you're going to file that complaint with the Department of Labor. And if you have a marketplace policy, you're going to file that complaint with Health and Human Services. So first of all, you have to figure out who you complain to and how you file that complaint. And most of the folks that, that we are all dealing with, when they have come up against a parity obstacle, they're really in no shape to tackle that complaint process. And so generally speaking, they give up. Now, if they're blessed enough to have a family member who gets really, really mad, the family member may take that up and decide, you know, I am going to fight this. But most folks, they just tend to go away. And that's very, very sad for the folks that we're trying to serve, but I think it serves the purposes of the insurance companies quite well. And so, you know, they, a lot of people are staying out of treatment because they can't, they don't know how to fight the, the problems with their policies. In, um, and in Texas, in our state-funded system, if you have any kind of health insurance, you can't qualify for a state-funded bed. It doesn't matter whether your health insurance policy pays or doesn't pay for treatment, but if you just have insurance, even though you may not have a benefit for substance use, you still can't get into a state-funded bed. So you really don't have access to treatment then in that situation. Um, so, you know, part of uh, what we are doing in Texas is we have a group of advocacy groups that have, are working together to begin to, to tackle this um, and to really look at how can we get better implementation and enforcement of the parity law. Because Texas has said we don't have the authority to enforce this federal legislation, 
it may in fact take passage of a state law to get them to say, okay, you know, we're, we, we will have to take this on. We will take some responsibility for this. And so we're working um, with our uh, state association of substance abuse programs. For us in Texas, um, it was previously our SAS affiliate. It's now our National Council affiliate. And it'll, historically in Texas, that organization, the Association of Substance Abuse Programs, really just uh, was a membership group for state-funded uh, providers. In Texas, we have worked really hard to make that a very inclusive group so that it is public as well as private providers. And we have, rather, we have wanted to consolidate those efforts because other than where the money comes from, everything else about regulation of facilities that they are involved with applies across the board. So we are work, you know, we're bringing in more privately funded providers so that we have one advocacy group in Texas that is working. And so I don't know how that works in other states, but I would encourage you to, to look at that. Also, mental health groups, are we're working with them, and the recovery groups, the recovery advocacy groups, like Young People in Recovery and the Recovery Community Organizations groups. Um, in Texas, we have a on-year, off-year for our state legislature, and we are currently in our off-year. And one of the things that is happening right now in this interim period is our, um, our Speaker of the House uh, established a select committee on uh, looking at the mental health and substance use service care across the state of Texas. And so we're targeting that group right now. Um, we are pushing to get a, a hearing with the special committee on parity and highlighting issues with key representatives and key senators at the state level. And we're talking about absolutely first and foremost the need for enforcement, but we're also talking about caveats within parity that, you know, some of the examples that have already been talked about, but just the qualifications for people who are doing the reviews. Is the person on the other end of the phone actually qualified to, to talk about the care that people are receiving for substance use services? Um, and we have, we're back, coming back around to Texas Department of Insurance again, uh, and we have more hard data now to present to them, and we also have a more unified group to present to them. In addition to that, they're, they're going to have more direction from the federal government to work with um, about, you know, how to implement these guidelines and, and what they need to be, what they need to be doing. And so bringing all of those kinds of things together um, within our state, because we have a state who's been very, very resistant to this, and we're really trying to kind of break through that wall with them. Thank you very much. We're going to have some questions now. We have about 30 minutes remaining in the presentation. Uh, the one question that I wanted to throw out uh, on behalf of the panel is uh, so many of our NAATP members have inquired as to the confusion around the, the decision that this federal law was then kicked to the states to develop enforcement mechanisms. And I would just ask. Lisa, I think you alluded to in your description of New York State. Um, how does someone from New Jersey uh, go about with our constituency, encourage the state 
or force the state, compel the state perhaps even, to develop an enforcement mechanism because in virtually all states there isn't one that is explicit to providers and families who find these violations occurring. I, I was just going to say that uh, one of the most important pieces is coming armed with, um, with information and data because, you know, government agencies, government enforcers, you know, always interested in potentially moving forward if there is something that's problematic out there and affects a lot of people. Um, but you really have to come with as advocates. And I think um, you may all be doing this already, but to the extent that you're not, it, you know, it's, it, and you have, I, I get that everyone has so many things to accomplish and you're, you're providers, you're not, you know, you're not, uh, you're not thinking of yourselves necessarily as data compilers, but, um, you know, to the extent that you can be watching these denials and categorizing them in different ways to, um, to assist your advocacy uh, is so important, I think, for enforcement agencies um, to hear if they don't have their own complaint mechanisms, and some don't. Um, you know, there's, there's been many, many questions that we've gotten from other uh, public interest groups, uh, you know, what, how did you develop your helpline, how, you know, what should other folks be doing? I'm sure that the insurance department in your state has a complaint line. Uh, usually they do have some form of complaint monitoring. Uh, maybe you foil to get that information, but I think you have your hands on so, so much of the, the problem. And so, you know, kind of tallying up your, your denials, kind of looking at whether they're, they're giving you the, 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 the information that you really need, that your patients really need to, to move the ball forward, um, to appeal. Uh, talking about how, you know, maybe seeing patterns of certain plans um, doing more denials than other kinds of plans. I think it's really kind of tracking the information and then, and then coming with coming armed with uh, some information about how, there, how the states can be doing this work. Um, departments of insurance were in fact very busy with uh, the health exchange, that's for sure. And in fact, the AG's office, I think we took advantage of uh, a particular moment in time uh, to just say, you know, we're gonna do this issue. And the Department of Insurance in New York didn't um, pay it any mind because they were developing their own health exchange. Um, but I think it's really important for, uh, for folks who come and advocate with an AG's office to do it really mindfully uh, with the information before you, you know, with the individual stories and with, you know, how many denials you've seen, how it's changed, how it affects you, um, and, you know, how the state does have jurisdiction to take on this issue. I'm happy to provide that. Um, that legal analysis if uh, people need to bring it with them. So Thank you. Um, I, I'm always amazed at the interest groups that come to us um, with an issue, but they, it's, you know, they don't come with it uh, formulated. And it's true, we, we can look into that issue, but we have a lot of things to look into. And we did this one on our own. We, no one really came to us with the information. We, we were interested in the issue, we wanted to pursue it. But I think for those that might be a little sleepy about it, it's to really kind of bring it with as much uh, data and information as you can. 
Thank you, Lisa. Uh, perhaps this is naive, but I, I, I supposed when I had heard that the legislation was a federal law for 50 states to develop an enforcement mechanism that maybe a handbook would come with it, but apparently not. And so uh, I'm just curious, Mark, uh, if this White House group is somehow developing not a handbook per se, but guidance to the states as to how all 50 states can proceed down a path to compel their individual state to enforce the law? We hope so. <laughs> um, actually, um, this is something we've been advocating for a long time. And uh, we just learned that through HHS, they are developing guidance to the states. So finally, they're getting to that point. Uh, in terms of the White House task force, um, we hope that they will actually go beyond just guidance. And uh, as we know, uh, the president has, uh, you know, he's, he's not reserved in using his executive orders. And uh, there probably are some things he can do to further enhance uh, what can be done through enforcement. Thank you, Mark. Okay, for the time we have remaining, uh, yes, ma'am. First of all, you can run the same play two or 200 or 2,000 times. And if you're careful about it, I don't know why the results would be any different because the principles are the same and it's a uniform federal law. Class actions can be a wonderful way to go in sort of certain limited ways. The history of class action litigation with the parity stuff has been literally years of preliminary procedural skirmishing over who can the plaintiff be and who can the defendants be. And it's tough to get a federal judge willing to, you know, fix parity, which is frankly what some of the complaints read like to me. Whereas it's much easier to motivate a, to motivate a judge if you've got, you know, one issue, one one client, one family, and and one defendant. So class action, the class action angle is not going to do all the work and fix the problem for. So that's sort of one solution to that. And as another example, you know, the class action that's the farthest along involves the content of UBH's criteria. And, you know, and that's great. If, if they've got stuff in the criteria that were deliberately, you know, sort of written to clamp down care below what's clinically needed, that ought to be fixed. But we all know that that's not even one-twentieth of the day-to-day -day stuff that we see that stands between patients and, and, and the care that they need. So, you know, thus far, as far as I know, um, the only real successful use of the class action tool has been, and even that's not, they're not done yet, they're still arguing about class certification, but um, long-winded lawyers, long-winded way of saying, I, I don't think that's going to fix it for us. Thanks, Greg. Uh, yes, sir. Yes.
Well, there, there are a number of things that we would encourage you to do. Uh, first of all, uh, with regard to the White House Parity Task Force, we're going to be developing comments um, that will be submitted to them, and we will share those with uh, NAATP members and encourage you to use that as a model to submit your own comments, and you can add to that um, any specific information you may have with regard to uh, parity violations uh, that you're aware of in your own facility. That's number one. Number two, um, I would encourage everybody to take the opportunity to, first of all, get to know their member of Congress, and then to educate them about the field and certainly about the importance of parity. And that's kind of a separate uh, effort. Um, but um, just FYI, uh, Sherry and I will be talking about those things specifically tomorrow at 1 o'clock in a, in a different uh, discussion. And we'd love to have everyone join us at that as well. Thanks, Mark. Okay. Yes, in the back. Yeah, oh, I'm sorry. Sherry? We actually pulled a lot of some information together at La Hacienda, and I think it's very doable. And just wanted to briefly share how we did that and what, what we found out, because that's kind of the kind of thing that you can put into a little report and send. We did 60 days. We went this year, mid-February to mid-April. Uh, in that time frame, uh, I asked our business office and our utilization review department just to record, fill out a little form that they came up with, and to record the par parity violations that they had. We had 26 in that period of time. I'm estimating that that was about 10% of our cases. Um, and in that, uh, and I'm sure there were more than that because, you know, there were ones they said, oh, I forgot to fill out that little form Sherry wants me to fill out to do this with. Um, but we had Blue Cross Blue Shield, United, Aetna, and one of our regional insurance companies well represented in all of these. Um, we had 11 of our policies that included annual maximums. Nine of those included lifetime maximums. Uh, one said that's only detox in a hospital setting and you have to come in as an emergency case. Uh, three had no prior treatment failures. Um, and two, it was virtually impossible to verify benefits and get authorization for the care. So, you know, we put this information together into just a, a a little one-page thing um, that I'll be glad for you know to share with anybody but we're taking that to you know we're, we're giving that to our, our state representatives who's part of the select health com select uh, committee on mental health uh, giving that information to we're taking that to the Texas Department of Insurance we will submit that as part of comments to the White House task force but to, to just take a time period and pull information out of your organization so that you have that data that Lisa was talking about. And just, just this is a consumer protection law. It's not a go out and get a healthcare lawyer and run it through and collect data and do an analysis law. And you're probably in a better position than anyone else in this room because, you know, the notion that it would be okay to say to a patient, go out and come back when you're sicker, you know, the, the only question you have to ask is how would this look on the human medicine side. And if you don't cite the right law, if you don't cite any law, 
Um, so what? You know, you've got representatives and senators and insurance departments and bureaus of managed care and House members. It's just the price of a postage stamp. And, you know, remember that in New York, 200 complaints was enough to get, obviously, a compelling public health case and a lot of other stuff, but 200 complaints was a lot. In a state with a much smaller population, and, you know, it's, it doesn't take a lot to make a landslide. Um, so I wouldn't, I would not, you know, wait to get the best answer before you do the good answer. So. Thank you. I Lisa. just wanted to mention one um, government enforcer that hasn't been named, but that's the Department of Labor. Uh, so the Department of Labor and the New York Attorney General's Office have now combined forces because of um, really wanting to cover the whole field. So we really only have authorization or um, jurisdiction over this the state, uh, the state insured plans and the self-insured plans, as um, we talked about earlier, are, are overseen by the Department of Labor, ERISA. But if you get us together, if you get an AG's office and the Department of Labor together, we can take one company that maybe half their business is self-insured and half is fully insured or the state, you know, state overseen. We can get at all of the policies. So it's just to say that DOL is also very interested in this issue. They came to us. Um, independently and we now have a memorandum of understanding to get at companies fully. So I, I think that that is also another good place for you. You'd have to, you know, you could submit in your region. I think they're interested. Thanks, Lisa. Uh, Paul? The question was, does the White House understand what the complexity of this uh, challenge is, and do they really understand what's going on? And what type of executive action uh, could the president take? Mr. Dunn. <laughs> um, I would say that uh, the president has, um, based on some input from some very key advisors, has a fairly good understanding of what's going on right now. Uh, I give a lot of credit to uh, Director Botticelli. Um, you know, uh, Director Botticelli spoke at our conference last year. He's very open about the fact that he is personally in long-term recovery and uh, he understands addiction and uh, certainly is a big fan of, of parity. So he has done a great job of informing the President and the White House about uh, this issue. Uh, I also have to give a shout out uh, to the Vice President. Um, Vice President Biden has been a longtime supporter of this field, and um, because of some personal knowledge he has, uh, he has had key conversations with the President, and I think those two have really moved, helped move this uh, front and center in terms of uh, uh, what the President's focused on. Um, we're going to explore what actions the president could take in terms of executive action. Uh, certainly, some of the things that we'll be thinking about and, and focused on will be the uh, requiring the disclosure of all of the elements uh, uh, in in uh, parity challenges that Greg was talking about in the in the lawsuit. Uh, we'll be talking about uh, federal state uh, monitoring systems to um, 
to look at compliance. So rather than basing it on complaints, perhaps perhaps we'll have a mechanism to actually go out and proactively monitor what's going on. Uh, we'll be looking at uniformity of enforcement. Uh, you know, some states do a much better job than others, obviously. Um, be looking at a uniform complaint process that is relatively easy for uh, those who have been denied. Um, and then we'll be looking at perhaps whistleblower protection for people who, uh, for facilities who uh, submit complaints. So those are some of the things we'll be looking at. There'll be many more than that before we're done. Um, and some of those we're hoping uh, the White House can take some pretty specific action on. And again, just, just a shout out to uh, the importance of advocacy. We had invited and, and uh, Governor Jack Markell uh, and First Lady Carla Markell spoke very personally in support of our work here at our national conference. Was it last year or the year before? Yeah. The year before. And the, governor's, the governor then discussed this issue at the Governor's Association meeting and very much uh, communicated to uh, Vice President Biden through this. So it's educating our elected office holders in our states, representing us both statewide and federally, that really does, when push comes to shove, them knowing our issues is, is crucial. So, yeah. yes, sir. I'll just say we have not yet been able to convince a Pennsylvania prosecutor, prosecutor to do that, but it's not for lack of trying. So. Very good. Uh, yes, the lady in the back corner.
Thank you. Greg, is, Greg, has it been your experience that simply through the use of the ASAM patient placement criteria, they can't say no, Greg? That has not been my experience. And oh. what, are, what are your... <laughs> <laughs> Okay, but I understand. Greg. Okay. No, I just, it's, we, you know, we, we should talk a little bit because my, my sense, my question is what sorts of residential lengths of stay are you getting out of that? And how does that compare, you know, to what is being otherwise recommended by the clinicians? Okay, thank you. Um, thank you very much. A question over here? Was there a question? Jim Geckler? Thank you. Another question? Yes, sir. No. But no. I think I think there. I don't, I'm not familiar with that study, but I do feel, at least in the Northeast region, that there's um, there's uh, demonstrated commitment already. I would just say, but yeah. it may not be across the country. I, I think they found a lot of quantitative stuff. You know, you review the benefit folks, you look at the co-pays, but in terms of the non-quantitative treatment limitations, I'm just, I'm not aware that they've even, you know, done what New York has already shown them how to do. Okay. Yes. Yes, sir. <laughs> we're, we're hoping that Mr. Trump is also wanting to make NAATP great again, so. <laughs> Mr. Dunn, take that question, please. Oh, thank you so much. I, I have a question, though, just to ask um, everybody, yeah. just for a second. Are, is, when, when you're dealing with one of the health plans, you are, you are asking for their medical necessity criteria. I mean, are you aware of it? And you all know that you should be asking for it. Okay, yes. so I just wanted to make sure that everybody's yeah. on board. On that, we're very good, Lisa. Good, yeah. good, yeah. good. Yeah, understood. Well, Did um, you want to take a, that question, <laughs> Mark? Here's a question for Lisa. But what about the other stuff? You know, the stuff they have to provide under the Affordable Care Act includes not just the guidelines themselves, but the criteria, the pathways, the algorithms, and, you know, to what extent are you seeing the stuff they really don't want to turn over shake loose? You know, I think that there's uh, public education to happen on that front. It's actually on my list here that, that that's something that 
providers can be asking for, uh, for all the medical surgical stuff. I think, you know, we haven't seen a provider come to us to say, you know, I just asked for that information and I haven't been able to get it. So it's, it's unclear how, how that's arming uh, providers like yourselves. It's certainly something that could be useful to have. Um, and so it's just another tool for people to, to, to use. But it's also complicated. Um, so I think, you know, now it seems that uh, the final rule re requires that the plans give up this information to providers when asked. But I, it's hard to know how um, providers are going to use it um, quickly because you have, you have such immediate, uh, you know, tasks that are ur <coughs> often urgent, as you know better than I. Thank you, Lisa. And we'll make the final question, Mr. Dunn's uh, <laughs> comments on, um, do, do Mark, does, has either presidential campaign made a clear uh, policy definition of a, what they want to do about the addiction problem in America? Um, let me just say that the question, I think, points out something that's very important for the field. And that is, you know, after all this time with the Obama administration, we finally have some huge momentum, and the, the key is going to be keeping that momentum alive regardless of who wins this election. Um, I can tell you that, in, in just as a matter of fact, the uh, fact is that uh, Secretary Clinton has sent out a pretty comprehensive policy dealing with addiction. Um, a lot of the same people advising President Obama would be probably advising a Clinton presidency. We don't know a lot about uh, Mr. Trump's policies. <laughs> the, the only <laughs> not, not just on addiction. <laughs> uh, we, the only thing we do know is that when uh, uh, Miss America had a problem with addiction, he did send her to treatment. Yep. <laughs> yes, he did. But we really don't know a lot beyond that. So that being a measure, uh, I want to thank everybody for coming and thank our wonderful panel. Enjoy your lunch.